the marking of a new year impresses upon us the inevitability of change. Times and circumstances, things, and even we ourselves change. Yet in a world of flux, there are some constants, such as the speed of light or the pull of Earth's gravity. Cats will not begin to speak. We will not grow wings. And win or lose, we will always love the leaves. These things remain true. Yet as Christians, we have a, an even greater constant than all of these. And the greatest constant, the greatest reality, the greatest unchanging truth is that we have an unchanging God. The psalmist begins with a cry, an appeal to God to hear him in his distress. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. Surely, the psalmist finds himself in a difficult spot. He's sick, and perhaps mortally so. He views himself at the very point of death. And he begins with a plea to God, verses 1 and 2. The next division of the psalm, verses 3 to 11, contains his complaint to God. He's pouring out his complaint to God, his distress. He tells us in verses 3 to 11 that the sickness that he finds himself in consumes him. He's suffering. My days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned like an earth. And perhaps he means that he's being burnt up by fever. Whatever is taking place in his body, he sees himself as stricken down. He's not eating. His, he simply is now flesh and bone, his skin on bone rather. My bones cling to my skin in verse 5. I am like a pelican, an owl in the wilderness. I'm like an owl in the desert. He's alone. He's suffering with fever. He's alone. And in verses 8 and following, he finds himself opposed by his enemies. They reproach him. They swear against him. He spends his time not eating but weeping. And he recognizes in verse 10 that the troubles that he finds himself in are troubles that have come to him from God, for he says, because of your indignation and your wrath, you have lifted me up and cast me away. That behind all of his troubles, he sees the providential hand of God. My days are like a shadow that lengthens and I wither away like grass. This is the man who is at the point of death. The third division of the psalm, which runs now from verses 12 to 22, is a major contrast in the tone and in the substance of the psalm. I know that commentators have questioned the 
legitimacy of this portion of the psalm suggesting that it is so radically different from what we have seen before and what we'll see afterwards that it perhaps is a blending of another psalm. I would suggest to you that this is not uncommon. If you are reading the Psalms, you will find that the psalmist often moves from complaint to confidence. And what, what you find in verses 12 to 22 is now a statement of, com, of confidence. Of confidence in the triumph of God's mercy. That he fundamentally believes that even though he's at the point of death, that God will be merciful. Now, here he looks for God's mercy, not only to himself, but to the nation, the people of God, the children of Zion, who themselves ostensibly are suffering. So he says, but you, O Lord, shall endure forever. You shall be enthroned forever. And the remembrance of your name through all generation. He says that the Lord will rise up and he will show mercy. The Lord will indeed show mercy to his people. He will hear the prayers and the groanings of his people. And he will do so, ultimately, so that future generations will be able to hear and to praise the Lord. But he calls upon God here in our last section. In this section, there is this element of complaint and yet confidence. And so we read what he says to us in verses 23. He has weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your generations are throughout all. Gener your, your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. And the earth are, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. yes. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloth, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. And the children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. What he does in this section is that he, yes, complains of the brevity of his life. In verse 23, he's being cut down in the midst of his years. His life is being shortened. But he says that the Lord himself continues through all generation in verse 24b. What he does then, he compares himself with God. His life is marked by brevity. His life is marked by fragility. But God endures forever. But he also compares God with creation. Because for the, the writer, the psalmist, creation, the heavens and the earth are symbols of stability and permanence. But when even compared to God, even the heavens and the earth, the very picture of stability and permanence, these two are marked by the same fragility and brevity that characterize the life of man. And so he talks then about the brevity of creation with regards to its relationship with God. He says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. But even these, these which are so seemingly permanent, they will perish. But you will continue, you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment, 
and like a cloak you will change them. Here the psalmist says that the heavens and the earth will grow old, just like a, a man puts aside old clothing and takes off an old garment and puts it away. So God will change creation. He will put creation aside. He will bring this stable and permanent world to an end. Nevertheless, in verse 27, he says, You are the same, and your years will have no end. The New Testament, and in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses, uh, um, quotes verses 25 to 27, to refer to Jesus Christ, who is greater than angels, because he is forever, because he is permanent and unchanging. The psalmist then concludes with an implication from God's eternal an unchangeable nature. That is, his children, the children of the patriarchs, will continue and their descendants will be established before the Lord. What I want us to talk about and what I want to reflect upon in your hearing is a few words in verse 27. And you are the same. And you are the same. Because here is a statement about the constancy, the permanence of God, the unchanging nature of God, or what we call the immutability of God. All of this is referring to God's unchanging nature. You are the same. My friends, first of all, we must understand that this statement, in verse 27, you are the same, points to God, who is unchanging in this reality. He finds consolation that though the heavens and the earth change, though his life change and the circumstances change, God does not change. In fact, verse 27, as you look at it, you may render that. He says, you are the same. In fact, the language is, you are he. You are he. And it means God remains himself. You are yourself. In fact, this kind of language is similar to the name that God has been given, that God has, the name Yahweh, which means I am that I am. I will be what I will be. God is unchanging in his nature. When we think of God's being, God's nature, God's essence, we think of God in certain ways. We think of God first as a God of acity, that is, God is self-existent. He does not depend upon anything else for his life. We think of the simplicity of God, that is, God is not composed of various parts. God is spirit. We also think of the unity of God. There is one God. And we also think of the infinity of God, that God is infin infinite. With regard to space, we say that he's immense or that he's everywhere. And with regards to time, we say that God is eternal. God's being in his self-existence, in his simplicity, unity, and infinity cannot change. Why is it impossible for God to change in his being? It is impossible for him to change because the psalmist suggests here that God's immutability, God's unchangeable nature is somehow linked to his eternality. That is, in verse 27, you are the same and your years will have no end. God is unchanging in his being because he is perfectly eternal. God is the God who is perfect and he is eternally perfect. He is not dependent on anything outside of himself. 
He, he wills to remain the same. From eternity to eternity, he contain, continues as the same perfect God. A God who is free from potentiality. God has no potential. There is nothing in God that is yet to be fulfilled. God does not improve. God does not deteriorate. He cannot change from existence to non-existence. He cannot change from knowledge to ignorance, from wisdom to folly, from holiness to sinfulness, or from strength to weakness. God is unchanging in his being and in his attributes. And I'm not really making a significant difference between being and attributes. All the qualities and characteristics of God are permanent. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism then rightly sums up the immutable nature of God when it says God is spirit, infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness and truth. You are the same. This is where the psalmist anchors his life. You are the same and your years will know no end. Support for the affirmation of God's unchanging nature is to be found in other biblical texts. Perhaps the, the most well-known text that affirms that God is unchanging in his being is found in the book of Malachi and chapter 3 verse 6. Here in Malachi chapter 3, the prophet speaks of the imminent coming of the Lord, a coming to judge the rebellious amongst the people of God. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. I am the Lord. I do not change. I do not change in my covenantal commitment. I do not change in my faithfulness. I do not change in what I have said I will do. I do not change, and therefore, because I do not change, I will not consume you. You see, the Lord remains a God of grace and faithfulness to his covenant. The New Testament also underscores the truth that God is unchanging in his nature. In James 1.17, James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Here in our passage here in James the writer speaks about God and encourages them to endure trials and temptations. And he reminds them that God does not tempt anyone to do evil. Instead of tempting people, he dispenses good and perfect gifts, that is, beneficial and adequate gift from heaven to his children. And he says that these good gifts, these beneficial gifts, these adequate gifts, descend from the Father of lights, the one who created the, the heavenly bodies. These heavenly bodies may change. They may admit flux and variation. 
But in God, there is no fluctuation. He does not vary. He does not change. He does not deviate in his character. You are the same. You see, God's unchanging nature. God is unchanging then in his being, essence, and in his perfections. But if God is unchanging in fundamentally who he is, that he will be himself, that is always himself, then God is unchanging and constant, not only in his perfections, but also in his purposes. If God is unchanging in his being, then the things that he has planned must also be unchanging. God's purposes do not change. In fact, in Psalm 102 and verse 28, there is a suggestion that because God is unchanging, you are the same, your years will have no end, therefore his children will continue. God's, God will support and undergird his people because he is a God of consistency, of constancy. He continues in his faithfulness and therefore his people are established and they continue. And scripture again points out to the, the fact that God is not only consistent, constant in his being, in his person, but in his purposes. You take this story, for instance, of Balak, the king of the Moabites, who wanted Balaam to curse Israel. God had promised he was going to bless Israel. But Balaam is now being encouraged by a large sum of money from Balak to curse Israel. And Balaam, who, by the way, we do not believe he's a man of great reputation, though he's a prophet, he nevertheless says this. He says this to Balak. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God does not change his plan or purpose for Israel to bless them. This same idea of God who is unchanging in his purpose occur, occurs in 1 Samuel 15, 29. Because of King Saul's disobedience, God tears the kingdom away from him and gives it to David. And Samuel, in telling Saul that he will no longer be king, that he will no longer have the rule over Israel, he says to him, and also, the strength of Israel, referring to God, will not lie nor relent. For he is not a man that he should relent, that is, he should change his mind, go back on what he has purposed. David himself confirms that God is unchanging in his purpose. He tells us that God, the counsel of the Lord, stands forever, and the plans of his heart to all generations, Psalm 33, verse 11. The prophet Isaiah, in the book of Consolation, which runs from chapter 40 to chapter 66, he tells us, as he encourages Israel, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are yet to be done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all in my pleasure. Psalm 46, 9 and 10. 
I will do all my counsel. I will do all my plan. I will bring all my decision to fruition. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, in reminding the Ephesians of God's mystery, the mystery that has been hidden in the past but revealed that God intends that Jews and Gentiles should be one in Christ. He says this mystery has now been revealed that God planned to unite Jews and Gentiles in Christ. This is according to God's eternal purpose. What God had planned that the redeemed, his people, whether they be Jew or Gentiles, that they should be one in Christ. This was also planned by God's eternal purpose. In other words... God does not make up his plan on the fly. He does not change his plan because of changing circumstances around him. His counsel stands. What he decides in eternity remains forever. His purposes can never change. So God is unchanging in his perfection, in his being. He's unchanging in his plans. But it is precisely at this point that we must address objections to the, the, this reality that God is unchanging. The German theologian Isaac Dorner in 1808 to 1884 says that God is unchanging in his ethical stance. God hates sin yesterday. God will hate it today and God will hate it tomorrow. God is unchanging ethically. But Donner claimed that God changes and changed in his being. And of course he's writing now in the context of the incarnation and what is called by some the self-emptying of God in coming into the world. And so he claims that when the Son of God became man, that God changed. The response to that that has been given throughout the centuries is that God became man in Christ. But that did not result in a change in the being of God, in who God is. God remained in Christ, God of God and light of lights. There was not a mixture in the incarnation. That is, when Christ came into the world, there was no mixture between the divinity and the humanity of Christ. You did not have on one hand that the divinity of God or the Son of God took on humanity. Nor did the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ took on divinity. No, he was in what we call the hypostatic union, the two natures. He was one person, but two natures. He was God, fully God, without mixture, without confusion. And he was fully man. One person with two natures. He was fully God. So the incarnation did not change the nature of God. He remained fully God. A more troubling objection to the immutable nature of God arose from process theology and later, and in recent times, what is now known as open theism. And here, theologians generally postulate that God does not possess exhaustive knowledge. But that God experiences the world, he takes risks, he changes his mind and his plans and actions in response to human choices. And in fact, they would cite biblical evidence to tell you that God changes. They will cite, for instance, text like Genesis 6, verse 6, where it says that God 
was sorry that he made man. In 1 Samuel 15, 10 to 11, we are told that God regretted that he made Saul king. And in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, 10, God relented from the disaster he announced against Nineveh. Now, we cannot enter into an exhaustive discussion of this issue as to the, whether God changes in his, in his purpose and in his being, or whether he changes at all. This is not a place for a full dis- discussion. But there are two observations that I think that must suffice here. First of all, when we read in the scriptures the language of God regretting something, or God relenting, changing, these must be seen as accommodated speech, speech that Scripture uses to enable us to understand, to help our understanding. Scripture often ascribes human actions and emotions to God, but these must not be taken to mean that the Scriptures are affirming that God possesses some imperfection. Secondly, and perhaps more specifically, one ought not to confuse divine immutability with immobility. By that I mean we should not believe that because God is unchanging in his nature, that God is inactive. That's not what we mean when we say God is unchanging. God must therefore not be seen as Aristotle's unmoved mover. He's not an unfeeling rock or as someone says a stagnant ocean. This is a God who lives and who interacts with men. Thus, God changes in how he deals with his creatures. If men sin, God is displeased. If men please him, God responds with approval. That's who God is. Because he hates sin and he loves righteousness. If men persist in rebellion, he judges them. But if they repent, as in the case of Nineveh, And the Ninevites, he forgives and withholds judgment. You know, Jonah walks into Nineveh and he says, 40 days and you're all dead. Well, basically, that's the message. He didn't even tell them, repent, you know, go seek the Lord. He just comes in and says, 40 days and you're dead. But these people repent and God does not destroy them. God did not change his mind. Because the message that, that Jonah brought, 40 days and you are all destroyed, there is this implicit, unless you repent. God already knew that the Ninevites would repent and that he would forgive them. But this was a warning to them that if they continued in the same course, they would be destroyed. You see, God is a God who changes in relationship to his people. If we sin, he disciplines If we do right, he blesses. If we repent, he withholds judgment. God does not change in his character. He does not change in his being. He does not change in his purpose. But he changes in his dealing with men. You are the same. God is unchanging in his perfections. He's unchanging in his purposes. But one more area in which God is unchanging is in his promises. We are here today and... We can move to another part of the city or another part of the country tomorrow. We change in location. God is everywhere. We change in size. 
and that does not need a lot of proof, fatter or thinner. We're changing quality. We can become better people in character or we can devolve into greater depravity. God, God neither possesses size so he cannot change nor can he devolve in his quality because he's perfect. Lee says we change in knowledge, but God does not change in his knowledge. We, we may know something today, and then a few years later we forget. Or we may learn new things, but God does not learn because he knows everything that there is to be known. He also says that people change in purpose and will. And as I just argued here, God does not change in his purpose. But another area in which we change is in our word. We give our word and we change our word. We make a promise, but sometimes because of the inconsistency of our nature, we don't really care to fulfill them. Sometimes we give our words, but we, we give it too hastily, so we didn't give it with knowledge and we must therefore make changes. Or we change our word and break our promises because of inability. We do not have the means to fulfill what we have promised. But God does not change in any of these ways and he does not change in his promises. The writer of Hebrews stresses this when he's, he talks about God's unshakable commitment to Abraham. The Lord, he says, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that is the unchanging nature of his will, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. God had given a word to Abraham. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your descendants. And God was unchanging in his word. And how did God signal to Abraham that he would never change his promise? He gave him a firm commitment, a promise, and he gave them an oath. He takes an oath against his very own life, what we call the self-maledictory oath of God, where God passes between the seven animals and suggests that if I change my mind, let me also be cut in two like these animals are split in two. He's unchanging in his promise. In fact, Paul says, all the promises of God in him are yes and are amen to the glory of God. All God's promises are unchangeable because they depend upon his unchanging nature. To sum up then, you are the same. Seen in its context and seen in the larger canon of scripture, means that God is unchanging in his being and perfection. God is unchanging in his purposes and God is unchanging in his promises. This, my friends, is of significance because this is the basis of our praise that if we are to truly worship and praise God, we need an unchanging God. God is different from creation. He's unchanging in his nature. His love does not change. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with love and kindness have I drawn you. In Jeremiah 31 verse 3. We need a God if we are to praise him who is always in charge. 
In fact, his power is not even affected by our incompetence and weakness. If we are weak, he remains strong. He, cha- he does not change in his motives. He always acts from the best motives and for the best possible reason and in the best way possible. He's not a God who must adapt to changing realities. You see, we need a God who is unchanging, who when we go to bed, we, we know that he's a loving and gracious and kind God. When we wake up in the morning, he's still the same. We need a God who is forever the same. And the God we serve is forever and ever unchanging in nature. You cannot worship a God who is imperfect. You can never give him the full devotion of heart and praise him unless he is consistent in his word and in his being. So we need a consistent God if you're to praise him. But because God is constant, that he remains himself, it means we are to trust him. Each year has its mixture of joy and sorrow of success and failures. And no doubt 2016 will bring its own share of troubles, its own share of hardship and difficulties. But we have this reality that the God we serve is unchanging in his promise. And therefore we are to trust his promises. But we aren't just to trust vague promises. He has given us specific promises. Well, what are these? Well, let me just list very quickly a few, at least three. We are to trust his promise to remain with us in our trials and throughout life. And so in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, the writer says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man can do to me. Wherever you go and in whatever condition you find yourself, this is the unchanging reality, is that the Lord will be with you. He will never abandon you. He has never abandoned one of his saints, and he's not about to begin to do so, because it would impinge upon his character. And when you feel abandoned by him, you must plead his word. You have said it, Lord, and you cannot change your mind. You see, God is not only to be trusted because he will always be with us. We are to trust that he will always secure us and guard us. So the writer says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You can trust that even in the midst of temptations and sin, that God will never completely abandon you. The hymn writer says, how firm a foundation. He says, the soul that in Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I will never, no, never, never forsake. 
one of the constants that you have in this year is that God will never give up on you. That even when you sin and when you fall down, God will not leave you and abandon you. You see, because, this, because Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Even when we turn aside and do the very things that grieve his heart. Even when we know that we ought not to be there or saying or doing that thing. Even when we sin deliberately and willfully against the loving God. Even when we have given him a million reasons to abandon us. Though we are faithless, he will be faithful for he cannot deny himself. We must trust him that he will remain with us and guard us and keep us in our walk with him. We must trust him that he will provide for our needs. And my God, Paul says, shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.9 My God shall supply some of your needs He shall supply all of your needs according to his incredible wealth in glory. We can trust him for a job. We can trust him to provide food on our table and clothes on our back and a shelter for us. We can trust him for our needs. Because God is unchanging in his nature, not only are we then to praise him and to trust him, we are to submit to him. I want to talk to you Very briefly, if you're not saved, there's a sense in which the unchanging nature of God is a terror, is a fearful thing. What I mean by that is, because God is unchanging in his nature, he's unchanging in his requirements, he will never change his mind about your behavior that displeases him. You know, we as parents, we get older. And when we get older, we, I don't know why this is, but we become mellow. You know, when we were young, we were very caustic. We had hard and fast rules. You know, children had to go to bed at a certain time, and they couldn't go raid the fridge at 1 o'clock in the morning. We had all kinds of rules, which were for the benefit. But as we get older, it kind of says, oh, come on, let's let the little boy do that. What's the big hurry up? What's What's the problem with that? Let's let him alone. We get soft. But God never grows soft. He never diminishes his standards. He never requires less of us. You need to know that the requirements of God remain the same. He still demands a holy life. He still demands that we repent. The Lord calls us to change course, and to change direction. This is the Lord who tells us he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world and that we must repent, we must turn from our sins. 
The constant God is saying to you, you cannot continue to live the same way you lived in displeasing me. You must change course. Because unless you change course, you are heading for a certain collision with God. And you will never win. You must change because God will not change. You must repent. You must turn from your sins. You must believe in Jesus Christ. This is the work that God has given you to do, to believe in the one whom he has sent, John tells us in chapter 6. You must believe in Jesus Christ. You must embrace him as your savior. You must put your whole hope and your confidence upon him. You must rest in the certainty of the finished work of the cross. You must look to Jesus Christ who died on the cross and you must claim his death as the full and final payment for all of your sins. You must rest in the blood of Jesus. You must believe. You must be born again. You must be a brand new creature if you're to go to heaven. These demands do not change. And the only way you can be changed is by going to God and turning from your sins and embracing Christ, trusting his work and committing your life to him. But I want to close by saying, because God is unchanging, it also means that you must imitate his constancy. Jane Austen wrote her last completed novel uh, called Persuasion. I believe it's made into a movie. But Persuasion narrates the story of Anne Elliot who's engaged to Captain Wentworth. Uh, Anne Elliot comes from an aristocratic family and the captain comes from an in well, a lower class in English society. And there is a family friend, Lady Russell, who convinces Anne not to marry the captain because they were not of the same rank. And so Anne accepts the counsel, and though she's engaged to Captain Wentworth, she breaks her engagement upon the counsel of Lady Russell. And so Wentworth goes away. Seven years later, he returns. And he returns a very wealthy man. But he is bitter against Anne because he considers her as one who is fickle in character, as one who is indecisive and not constant in her character. And it is only after a period of time in which Anne proves that she is constant in character that he eventually takes her back. This man wanted a woman who could not be blown all over the place, who would not be changing her mind all the time. He wanted a woman who was constant. And my friends, you... You need to know that God wants a constant people. A people who are not blown all over the place by every wind of doctrine. A people who will not blow hot and cold with him. Will love him today and not love him tomorrow. A people who are committed wholeheartedly to him. You see, the words of Moses are still applicable to us today. 
And now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes. God is looking for a a consistent people, a constant people, a people who give themselves first to God as a sacrifice, as as their reasonable service. They give their entire life to God. We, We must be constant in our love, in our devotion, in our obedience, in our commitment to Christ. We must be constant. We must not be changing. We must be constant in our commitment to one another as the church of God. We must be constant in our worship of God, not worshiping this Sunday and then forgetting him next Sunday, but worshiping him all the time because God seeks worshipers. We must be constant in our relationship to our wives and our husbands. We must be constant in our relationship, in our word. People must know us as a people whose word is our bond because God, you see, his word is his bond. May God grant us that he who is consistent on changing in his person, in his perfections, who is unchanging in his purposes and unchanging in his promises, may have a people consistent in the whole course of our Christian life. Come what may, we must remain with God by the grace of God.